Well, Job, the man's life that we've been studying is dying. He's been dying for months now. He's dying slowly. His wife thinks that he's dying. His friends think that he's dying. He is skin and bones at this point in the story. His skin has actually turned black. He smells terrible. And he is, as you can imagine, completely exhausted. Completely exhausted. Everything this man has gone through. So, I suspect that Job thinks his words in chapters 29, 30, and 31 are his last words. These are Job's dying words that we're looking at today. It is his last stand before his friends and before God. He has had time to think and to reflect as death gets closer and closer. That's not something that everybody has, but Job had it. Death looks right around the corner, and it has for months. So he's had a lot of time to think, a lot of time to reflect. And so here, he speaks out three chapters. And in these three chapters, here's what he does. He reflects on the past, he reflects on the present, and the future. He looks at the past, the present, and the future. In chapter 29, he looks back and remembers happier days. In chapter 30... He looks around and sees the misery of the present. And then in chapter 31, finally, Job gives his dying testimony and he looks forward to rescue and redemption, which he assumes will happen after he dies. But you can see we've got quite a few chapters left. 11 chapters after we're done today. God is not done with Job. He gives his dying words, but God is not done yet. God has one more surprise visitor to send him, and then God himself is going to come and pay Job a visit. And then Job's life will in every way, move in a, to Job, totally unexpected direction. But this morning, let's look at these three chapters, 29, 30, and 31, and let's consider together Job's last stand before men and before God. But before I preach this sermon, I should pray, will you please bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, 
Thank you for your word. And thank you for the light that it is to our path. Thank you, God, for the example that you have given to us in Job. That help us to learn from this imperfect man, but this righteous man. And help us especially today to learn from his example as he wraps up what he thinks is the end of his life. So help us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. So Job's words end here in chapter 31, but they started back in chapter 3. If you were here weeks ago, you'll remember that. So his words are going to end in chapter 31 today, but they started back in chapter 3. And he's come a long way since chapter 3. He's come a long way since chapter 3. His circumstances have actually worsened since then, but his faith has increased. In chapter 3, you remember Job wished that he was dead. He said it over and over again. He wished that he was never born. Or that if he was born, that he was still born. Or that God would kill him now. So in chapter 3, when he first starts speaking after months of suffering, he wishes that his life was over. But then, fast forward to where we are now. In chapters 29 through 31, Job reflects on his life. He's accepted the trouble in his life, and he makes this final and faithful case before God. So he's come a long way. Now here's what that means. Thinking about how Job has lasted through all of these chapters over months, and here he is, what he thinks is the end of his life, and he's still faithful to God, that means that what God said about Job to the Satan back in chapter 1 and true is true. That means that what God said about Job at the very beginning before all of this was and remains true. What did God say? In chapter 1, verse 8, and in chapter 2, verse 3, God said about Job before he suffered, Job is blameless. Job is upright. Job fears God. Job turns away from evil. What a thing to have God say about you. And so fast forward... All of this trouble, all of this suffering, all of the loss that Job has had to endure. And where is he? He's blameless. He's upright. He's fearing God. He's turning away from evil. And and guess what he's going to say? Job is going to say in chapter 31 at the end of his life, Job is going to say, I am blameless. I am upright. 
I fear God. I have turned away from evil. And think about it. What has he done before us throughout this book? He's remained blameless. He stayed upright. He has feared God. He has turned away from evil. So in these chapters that we're looking at today, especially chapter 31, Job is echoing God's words to Satan back in chapters 1 and 2. In other words, God's testimony about Job and Job's testimony about Job are the same. The accusation from Satan and from his friends has been, you're not. Right? That was Satan's accusation at the beginning. No, God, you're wrong. That's been the friend's accusation all along. No, Job, you're wrong. You're not blameless. You're not upright. You don't really fear God. It's a shell. It's a show. It's a veneer. It's not sincere. There's some hidden, secret sin. Otherwise, you wouldn't be suffering. That's their weak logic. So they're accusing him. Satan's accusing him. You're not blameless. You're not upright. God said he is blameless. He is upright. And Job at the end of his life is saying, I am blameless. I am upright. I do fear God. I do turn away from evil. And so throughout this book so far, Job has had to do two things. There's been, there's been two fronts. There's been two campaigns. A vertical campaign and a horizontal campaign. Horizontally, Job has had to defend himself over and over before his friends. And by the end of chapter 31, he has won the argument. So chapter after chapter, accusation after accusation, Job is defending himself. Today we'll see he wins the argument. If you read all those chapters, I think it's like 28 of them. If you read all those chapters and all the speeches between the friends and Job, you'll, you'll, if you look closely, you'll see that all, as time goes on, all of their speeches get shorter and Job's speeches get longer. And by the end of chapter 31, everyone taps out. The dialogue is done at that point. In fact, in the final 11 chapters of Job, he will only say seven more verses. And listen to the end of the Friends Council. In chapter 32, verse 1. This is after Job's speech that we're looking at today. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Finally, they shut up. Finally, they stopped their what he called miserable 
comforting. They're what he calls reckless counsel. Finally, they're going to stop. And what's the reason? Because he was righteous in his own eyes. There's no convincing him. That's their thought. We know who he really is. Again, otherwise he wouldn't be suffering, but there's just no convincing him. He will not admit it. He will not come clean. So what are the options? Job is either self-righteous, which is what they assume, like he says he's righteous, but he's really not, or what's the other option? He's righteous, which will be God's testimony. So that's the, the horizontal campaign that wraps up here. But there has also been a, a vertical campaign. There's also been a, a, a vertical front to this battle that Job is in. These questions and these appeals to God. Over and over again. And here's the example that Job sets for us. Listen. Here's the example that Job sets for us. He has kept his face toward God. In all of this suffering, in all of his doubts, in all of his questions, in all of his uncertainty, in all of his confusion, Job has not let go of God. He hasn't done this perfectly. Of course not. He hasn't done this perfectly, but he has done this faithfully. In times of plenty and poverty, in prosperity and pain, Job has remained faithful. Listen, there is no hypocrisy in this man. There is no hypocrisy in Job. He is who he says he is. He believes what he says he believes. He means what he says. Do you? Do I? Do you mean what you say? Do you? Believe what you say you believe? Are you who you say that you are? We'll ask that question again later. For now, let's survey these three chapters one at a time. Chapter 29. In chapter 29, Job looks back and remembers happier days. How was Job's life happier before? Well, he wasn't suffering. That's obviously part of it. 
He's, he's thinking back to days when he wasn't suffering, when he enjoyed good health, when he had a large family, he had a thriving business, but that's actually not primarily what Job misses here. And that's established in the first six verses of chapter 29. So he's looking back on happier days. How was Job's life happier before? And what we find is is this is not, chapter 29 is not Job remembering the good old days, right? When he was captain of the football team and voted most likely to succeed. That's not what Job is. He's not reminiscing about some good old days. That is not what this is. When Job thinks, when Job thinks of happier days, they were happier for one particular reason. Listen, verse 2. Oh, that I were as in the months of old when as in the days when God watched over me. He misses God. He misses God. My heart went out to Job this week as I was reading through these dying words. Some of you might relate to this. There's been, there have been many times in my life when I am discouraged, shallowly discouraged, sometimes deeply discouraged about any number of things, some of them serious, some of them trivial. But there are so many times in my life where I have been discouraged and then I have been comforted by God. Comforted by His presence, His Spirit, right? Comforted by His Word, His promises, His truth. What if that was gone? What if I didn't have that? God feels absent to Job. That comfort hasn't been there. He goes on in verses 3 through 6. Listen to what he's remembering from the past. When his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. So Job, it doesn't feel like God is watching over him anymore. He doesn't have God's lamp shining on his head. He doesn't have God's light to guide him in the darkness. But he did. He remembers that the day when he did, and it was so sweet. And it was the basis for his joy. 
And, and that's what's missing now. That's what Job misses the most. Verse 4, as I was in my prime. Now, how do you describe your prime? I realized in the last few weeks for the first time that I think I'm past my prime. Maybe. I hope not. But it's actually possible. I'm just talking worldly. But when you think of your prime, oh, I remember that. That was when I was in my prime. You hear people talk like that. And different people mean different things. What does Job mean? When he looks back, as I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent. That's his prime. When the Almighty was yet with me. When my children were all around me. When my steps were washed with butter. I am not sure what that means, but it sounds awesome. Butter makes everything better, even your steps. What a picture. I want my steps washed with butter and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. So it's God, I hope you see that, it is God that Job misses the most. He misses his children, of course. He says so in verse 5. Of course he misses his family, but it is the presence and friendship of God that he most longs for right now. He hasn't always felt like that. That's what makes Job's pain so great, right? When you have something and then you don't have it, it's more painful then than to have not had it at all. So Job had this. He enjoyed this. Okay, the, the, the great hymn writer and, 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 and poet William Cowper, he talks like this all the time because he went through so much discouragement and so much depression. And he'd have seasons in his life where he felt so close to God, it was, it was unbelievable to him. And then he'd have times where God felt so distant and the fact that God had felt so close made it unbearable when he felt distant. And he wrote beautiful, like, Psalms about this and poems and songs that we sing here. As he rests, that's what Job is going through right now. He remembers how sweet that was. So it was the abiding pr- friendship and, and presence of God in the past that makes his current absence feel so terrible for Job. So that says something about Job, doesn't it? That God is what he misses the most. That says something about Job. Think about it. What made Job's life so enjoyable? He's not talking about a boat here. Or a job This is the crushing blow for Job. It's the absence of God. That's what's making his life so miserable. 
I think that even if Job had all those things back, the absence of God would take the joy, the fun out of all of it. So it's God he misses most. It is the friendship of God that made Job's life so enjoyable. But he also looks back on his life in the community. So he misses God, that's number one. He also misses life in his community. That's what he reflects on verses 7 through 25. He had a good reputation, Job did. He had a good reputation with his community and for good reason. Job was highly respected. People were slow to speak around him. Some were intimidated by him. Even men older than Job stood up when he walked into a room, a sign of deep respect. Listen to how he talks about it. Verses 7 through 9. When I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew, and the aged rose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. Verses 21 through 23, men listened to me and waited and kept silence for my counsel. This is probably a jab at his friends as well. After I spoke, they did not speak again, and my word dropped upon them. They waited for me as for the rain, and they opened their mouths as for the spring rain. I don't think Job is boasting here. I don't think he's boasting. This was the reality. Job was a good man who clearly walked with God. He was what his friends are not. And he had this sort of reputation for a good reason. He was an example for others to follow. He loved his neighbor as himself. Verses 12 through 17 make this clear. Because I delivered the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind. I was feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous, and made him drop his prey from his teeth. So that's the picture of his past. As he thinks back, it has not been a wasted life. Job has enjoyed his life. He has loved God. He has loved others. Do you think you'll have memories like that? When you look back on your life, will you have memories like these? Will you remember a life spent well? Or will you remember a life wasted? Many years from now, Lord willing, when you are on your deathbed, what are you doing today that you will regret doing? 
many years from now, Lord willing, if you are on your deathbed, what are you not doing today that you will regret not doing? I'd like to have the testimony of Job to look back on my life this way. So that's his past. How about chapter 30? Here Job looks around and sees the misery of the present. And of course, it's quite a contrast, isn't it? It's quite a contrast between then and now. The Lord gave, which Job remembers in chapter 29, and the Lord has taken away, which is what Job is thinking about in chapter 30. H.L. Ellison said, It had been the presence and blessing of God that had poured radiance on the past. It was the veiling of God's face that had turned the present into night. That's chapter 30. And here's what we see. Those who used to respect and revere Job, now they mock him. Job has become one punchline after another to jokes. Others are happy to see this great man fall. Which is sick and is true. People like to see great people fall. And his peers were no different. And so he describes these mockers in the first eight verses, who they are that are mocking him. The first two verses, he says, But now they laugh at me, men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. So these guys that are younger than me, this is the reality, they're younger than me, they're mocking me, and their fathers... I wouldn't even have their fathers join the company of my dogs. And their kids are mocking me. Among the bushes they bray, under the nettles they huddle together, a senseless, a nameless brood, they have been whipped out of the land. These are criminals. That's what he's talking about. They didn't have prisons then. They just cast you out of the city. You just had to live out in the wilderness and eke out your existence there. These are criminals he's talking about. He doesn't think too highly of them. And it is these men that laugh at him, verse 1. Verse 11, they do not hold back their cruelty. They're glad he's suffering. Verse 13 says they promoted his calamity. They abhor him. They even, verse 10 tells us, spit on his face. This was a part of Job's suffering that we haven't really understood up until this point. But he gives us a window into it. Verses 14 and 15. As through a wide breach they come, and the crash they roll on. Terrors are turned upon me. My honor is pursued as by the wind, and my prosperity has passed away like a cloud. So, That's the contrast between 
his life among others then and his life among others now. But as he looks around, there's another even more painful contrast. And you know what it is. It's the apparent absence of God. He looks back and remembers how sweet it was in chapter 29. But here, he remembers what he is missing most. He remembers the day when God walked with him and talked with him and told him he was his own. But now, where's God? That feels gone to Job. Compared to the loss of everything else, the loss of God was the most painful thing for Job. He verbalizes that in verses 19 through 23. God, he says, has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you, this is to God, he says, I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. Picture that. That's how he feels. I'm crying out to you, and you're just looking at me. You lift me up on the wind. You make me ride on it. You've turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up on the wind. You make me ride on it, and you toss me about in the roar of the storm. So his prayers have gone unanswered. How long have you prayed for that thing? You've got something that you've been praying for forever, it feels like. Just forever. Is God ever going to answer this prayer? Job feels like all his prayers are unanswered. It's like he's praying and there's a, a glass ceiling. He can't see it, but they're just... They're hitting something. They're not even getting to God. There's no response. It's like a dial tone. His suffering is great. And Job, of course, knows that God is behind his suffering. Making this more difficult and painful. Jeff Thomas said, That is Job's sense of the value of his life, buffeted by the messengers, broken by the death of his children, whipped by the cynicism of his wife, and then he has to endure the despairing counsels of people who are supposed to be his friends. Job is a twisting leaf blown about by God. And he sinks so low in these final verses of chapter 30. He sinks so low. I mean, he had delivered others, but now he is the one who feels helpless and in need of deliverance. Verses 24 through 26. Yet does not one in a heap of ruins stretch out his hand and in his disaster cry for help? Did not I weep for him whose day was hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? But when I hoped for good, evil came. And when I waited for light, darkness came. My skin turns black. And falls from me, and my bones burn with heat. My lyre is turned to mourning, and my pipe to the voice of those who weep. 
Now, finally, chapter 31. So he's looked back. He's looked around. And in chapter 31, Job gives his dying testimony. This is it. And then he's tapping out. And his dying testimony is, I am innocent. I am blameless. I am upright. I have feared God. I have turned away from evil. It is a plea for justice, a final plea for justice before God. It's a a negative confession. It's a negative confession. I haven't done this. I haven't done that. It's in the form, as you read, of if then. And he just rattles off all these sins. If I've done this, then I should be punished. If I've done this, then I should be cut off. If I've done this, then I should be condemned. He's saying, I get it. I understand. I know how justice works. I know how the scales work. But I am blameless. I am not guilty of crimes deserving this. So he's pleading for justice. He refuses to sign a false confession, which he's feeling pressure to do from his friends. So let me just give you a sample of the things that he, he denies. And you can read it on your own if you haven't already. There's so many things he says here. He denies lusting after another woman that was not his wife. He said in verse 1, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? He denies dishonesty. He hasn't been dishonest, he says in verses 4 through 6. Does not he see my ways and number all my steps? If I have walked with falsehood and my feet has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. He's been generous. He has not been guilty of greed. He knows this. He's had so much wealth. Such a great temptation. And he's been righteous with it. He's honored God with his wealth. And he knows it. Listen to what he says in verses 16 through 22. If, there it is again. If I have withheld anything that the poor desired or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail or have eaten my morsel alone and the fatherless has not eaten of it, for from my youth the fatherless grew up with me as with a father and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or the needy without covering, if his body has not blessed me and if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, If I have raised my hand against the fatherless because I saw my help in the gate, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder and let my arm be broken from its socket. He hasn't done it. He has not committed idolatry. He has not loved something other than God more than God. Verses 24 through 28. 
If I have made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant or because my hand had found much, if, if I have looked at the sun when it shone or the moon moving in splendor and my heart has been secretly enticed and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges for I would have been false to God above. But what's he saying? I haven't done this. I'm blameless. I'm upright. This is his testimony. I have feared God. I have turned away from evil. There is no hypocrisy in Job. What an example. There's no hypocrisy. Verse 33 and 34. If I have concealed my transgressions as others do by hiding my iniquity in my heart, because I stood in great fear of the multitude and the contempt of families terrified me so that I kept silence and did not go out of doors. But I didn't do that, Job says. I am who I say that I am. I believe what I say that I believe. I mean what I say. He's not a hypocrite. And so he makes his final plea in verses 35 through 37. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps like a prince. I would approach him. This is confidence of a righteous man. It is not proud arrogance. He says, I want to see the charges. I want them written out for me. I want them presented to me. Let me defend myself. I'm blameless. I'm upright. What has God said about this man? What was God's testimony to Satan? Have you considered Job, he said? He is blameless. He is upright. He fears me. And he turns away from evil. You see, chapter 31, God's testimony about Job and Job's testimony about Job are one and the same. And yet Job is faithfully twisting like a leaf in the wind. He knows what is true. And he has enough. But there's so much he doesn't know. There's so much confusion. There's so much lack of understanding. There's so little light. But it's enough for Job to be faithful. So his two campaigns, if you will, come to a close. Horizontally, this final speech silences Job's friends. Job won the argument against his friends. 
He really did. He won the argument against his friends. Vertically, he hasn't won, of course. But he has remained faithful. He is still on his knees. He is still looking up. He is still crying out to God. He is still hopeful, even at the end of his life. Here's how David Atkinson describes these final words. He said, what courage, what integrity, what faith in God to risk challenging God like this. Think about that. To risk, I mean, if Job's wrong, hear how he's talking to God. I am blameless. I am upright. I have fear. What if he hasn't? I mean, what? Confidence. Even if he is going to have to learn, and he will, that he is speaking out of some ignorance of the ways of God, we cannot but admire his trust. He throws it all on God. And here it is. Always throughout Job's face is turned Towards God. That's Job. His face is always turned toward God. No matter what. So he's an example to us. So in conclusion. Let me just ask you a few questions. Questions I'm asking myself, questions I would encourage you to ask yourself in light of our study today. If you've been listening carefully, we've asked some of these questions along the way. But we need to revisit them and more specifically, what is your testimony? What is your testimony? And I'm not talking about how you came to Christ. What is your life's testimony? What is your reputation before God and others today? What is your reputation before God today? What is your reputation before others today? What will you say at the end of your life? I don't think it's ever too early to start asking that. It's really foolish to assume we're all going to be here for a hundred years. We don't know. God knows, but only He knows. He's numbered our days. His ways are good and perfect. So when that day comes, should you have the opportunity like Job did to think and reflect, 
what will you say at the end of your life? What will you think? What are you doing today that you will regret doing? What are you not doing today that you will regret not doing? Hey, what will your family and friends say about you when you're gone? What will they have to say about you? What will their testimony be? And then finally, because Job is such a good portrait of this. Friends, do you mean what you say? Do you mean what you say? Job said, I believe this and I believe that. And as his life played out, he clearly meant what he said. Job said, I believe God is in control. He meant what he said. Job said, I believe that God is good. And Job clearly meant what he said. Job said, I know that God will be good to me. And I know that he is my friend. And Job meant what he said. Job believed what he said he believed. So we say a lot of things, right? We say so many things. Those of you who are maybe further down a road of theology, doctrine, maybe have more light than others in this room, maybe how blessed you are, know more about God than others might know about God in this room. And so you have a lot to say. I have a fair amount to say. Things that I believe about God. I believe that God is sovereign over all things. I believe that God is holy. I believe that God is just. I, I believe that God is love. I believe that God is merciful. I believe that God is the source of all joy. And here's the problem. I say these things. And my church hears me say these things. And my friends hear me say these things. And my, my wife hears me say these things. And my kids hear me say these things. Well, when I'm dead and gone, will they think I actually meant those things that I said? This is the burden to consider today. 
Listen to that testimony of Job. I want that to be my testimony at the end of my life. If it's not my testimony now, I want to get this right. I want to change. I want to turn. I want to confess. I want help. If I say that God is the source of all joy and I'm grumpy all the time, then it doesn't take a genius to figure out when I'm dead and gone that I didn't mean it when I said that. If I communicated that being here in worship with all of you was a a have to and not a get to, then when I'm dead and gone, no one's going to believe that I meant it when I said what a joy it is to come here on Sundays. If I'm constantly biting my nails and anxious and worried about everything, then when I am dead and gone, my kids are not going to believe that I really meant it when I said God is in total control. I could keep trying to hit nerves here. I mean, these are mine. And I've got more. It's my bucket list and not in the good way. I've got buckets full of this stuff. I want that to change. So, oh God, help us to mean what we say. If I don't really believe it, and I'm all talk, help me believe it. And help me spot in my life how I'm not applying this and how I'm not living it out and how my mouth is saying one thing, but my actions are saying something else. Oh God, help me to mean what I say. Help me to be like Job. Oh God, to get to the end of my life and to look back and say, why? I messed up and I, I, I am absolutely not perfect and I am a sinner saved by grace, but I love God more than anything and He is my greatest treasure and no one would disagree with that. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, at least I and I'm sure many of us, we are convicted when we, when we see how our brother Job suffered And how he endured and the confidence and that he had in you at the end of his life and the trust that he had in you and even the joy that he was still finding in you when he had lost everything. God, if this is not our testimony, please make it our testimony. May we not be a people who say one thing with our lips and deny it with our actions and our choices and our words, our behavior. God, if we are where we are hypocritical, bring conviction. And give us, God, the help and the strength that we need through your word and through your people, through your son, to change God. So that you would be more glorified in us. We ask this in Jesus' name.